Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Okay, everybody, welcome to another edition, Tangentially Speaking, with uh, Gloria Mattioni this time. Uh, Gloria is Daniele Bolelli's amazing mother. Uh, The last episode was with Daniele, and during that uh, conversation, uh, if you listened to it, you heard us talking a bit about Daniele's childhood, traveling around with his mother. Uh, and uh, a few hints uh, at what sort of woman she was and is. And, um, you know, I guess the the takeaway is it takes a badass mother to create a badass historian, something along those lines, or badassery runs in that family. I'm not sure, but uh, I'd heard enough hints about Daniele's mother in conversations with him Uh, to be interested in knowing more about her. And then I saw her gardening, I guess, when I went over to to record the thing with Daniele. She was uh, working in the yard, and uh, wow, beautiful. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. Anyway, um, (laughs) sorry, sorry, Daniele. Shouldn't probably shouldn't comment about your Italian friend's beautiful mother. There must be some cultural taboos I'm busting there. But anyway, she's uh, she's great. She's really uh, smart and funny and interesting. And uh, as you know, what, what's the, the female equivalent of ballsy? Whatever it is, she's it. Ovary. Ovary E or something. Um, anyway, she's she's a badass woman uh and you'll hear her talking quite a bit in this podcast about a book that she was just finishing up it's out now it's just been released it's on amazon there's a link at my page chris ryan phd.com uh to the book it's uh called dakota warrior the story of james r weddell and uh so you'll see the link there pick up a copy check it out uh you can also order it directly from her i believe um and i'll put a link for for that as well on the the webpage chris ryan phd.com go to the podcast and you'll see daniele's gloria's and the entire archives we've broken a million downloads by the way i I got an email the other night saying congratulations you're over a million downloads so that's pretty cool and uh at the rate we're going now we'll probably break two million in a couple of more months so uh things are picking up thank you for that thank you for telling your friends and spreading the good word thank you for your donations your uh emails and everything else let's see well, we're gonna, I was going to keep this really short, but uh, let me throw out some thanks to Brad, Brad Wishart, Kevin Foster. Uh, thanks for your emails. Thanks everybody for the donations. If you're gonna, if you don't have any money to donate or you just don't like donating, which I can certainly understand, you can still get some money to us if you use our affiliate link for Amazon. If you go 
buy stuff on Amazon, why not go through our affiliate link? That way we get a little a little bit of Amazon's money. None of yours, but a little bit of Amazon's. Go to chrisryanphd.com, click on the podcast. You'll see the big bonobo up in the corner reclining click on his balls and that will take you to amazon anything you buy in that session will get i think it's two percent of whatever you spend so uh please use that if you go to amazon that's a great thing great way to send a little money our way to support the podcast thank you no more ads except the ever-present, always wonderful, Sure Design t-shirts. Check them out. I just placed a monster order. Monster. So within a couple of weeks, we're going to have all sorts of new t-shirt lines, hoodies, women's um, tank tops, all sorts of cool things at uh, chrisryanphd.com. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy this conversation with Gloria Mattioni. I certainly did. She's fantastic. Thanks. Bye. Okay, I am back in the uh, Bolelli compound, this time not with Daniele, but with Daniele's mother, Gloria. Uh, thank you for joining me. This is uh, special. This is great. I was sitting at this table a week ago with Daniele, and we were talking uh, about his childhood, and he mentioned uh, being in a brothel in Mexico when he was 11 or 12 years old, yes. uh, with you, you had just arrived and you, the guidebook said this would be a, a decent, cheap place to spend the night. And, right. <laughs> and it turned out to me, that's happened to me several times. We were uh, convinced of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and as he was telling the story, how he was 11, is that right? He was Something? 11. Yeah. I took him to travel with me since he was basically like three or f- four years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way he was telling the story made me think, yeah, I've always been intrigued by you. I'd see you around here, but you and I have never really spoken. Right. We never really met. Yeah. But you come up a lot in conversations with Daniele, and uh, he's such a unique, interesting character that I sort of naturally wonder, like, where did this guy come from? You know? <laughs> and then when he, uh, he mentioned uh, the brothel, I said something like, well, your mother must be a really interesting person. What, what, you know, what were you doing? She was traveling around with you when you were 11, and he, he told me a little bit about your life, enough that I said, man, I'd love to interview your mother, <laughs> thinking he would just laugh and say, stay away from my mother. Uh, but no. then he, he, I guess he spoke to you and you agreed. And so yeah. here we are. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you. I, I don't want to be intrusive at all oh, with absolutely. your, your family, but you seem like such an interesting person. So, um, and then I, in your email, there was a link to some books you've written mm-hmm. and uh, and your blog I looked at mm-hmm. and it turns out that you're uh, you're something of a public figure so this isn't that bizarre so let's let's just start at the beginning where where are you from what part of Italy are you um, from from Milan from Milan and yes. uh, and um, I was born there and, and you have a sister who's uh, very different from you is um, that my sister unfortunately died oh I'm sorry yeah. uh-huh. and Probably you saw in my blog a lot about my sister. Yes, yeah. um, it was a, one of the things really um, a real ordeal. You know, my sister actually had a brain stroke all of a sudden. Uh. Completely healthy person, a yoga teacher, and, really? uh, eating only healthy food, everything perfect, you know, healthy person. And all of a sudden, um, I got a call when I was, uh, you know, working in uh, actually in Topanga. <laughs> right? oh. I was uh, on a photo set in Topanga, and all of a sudden, I got a call from Italy telling me. 
um, you know, your sister fell and um, she had a brain hemorrhage and we don't know, she's in the surgery room, so you better hurry up. They made me understand that, you know, I really had to jump on the plane because hmm. he was not sure that I was going to see her alive. And then it turned out that actually she... She was alive after that, but she remained completely paralyzed, unable to speak, unable to move even one finger. And um, it was uh, a crazy, crazy ordeal because for two years and nine months, I tried every possible way to fight against this destiny. So I really was convinced that she could come back, you know, despite all the all the doctors were telling me. Sometimes, you know, it gets like that, like you don't want to hear it, right? And I didn't have, I don't have, I don't have much trust in the medical system, you know, I mean, the official medicine, Western medicine and all of that. So I wanted to try all alternative things, no? So I did until, you know, at the point uh, she improved, she made progress, but never to the point that she was going to be back to a real life. So at that point, you know, I was like, okay, that's it, you know, let her go. And uh, But, yeah, it was a, a big, big thing in my life, you know, that mm. made me change a lot of things and um, yeah I just finished to write a book about that you know uh-huh. yeah I had to turn it into a novel I mean to fictionalize yeah. the whole thing because um, you know I needed some distance right. how long <laughs> but, ago was this? Um, that was um, uh, from January 2006 to um, November 2008 uh-huh. so it took me a few years to be able to go back <laughs> to yeah. the to the whole thing and uh, write about, but I know it was, that's my way to heal from something, you know, I really yeah. need to write about it. Right. And then I feel much better. In fact, now I feel like I finally I'm over it. Meaning, of course, that the pain remains, but, you know, at least I can, I could <laughs> make sense of it, you know, in some way. Yeah. And was she fully conscious and aware? Um, she was, but uh, the doctors wouldn't recognize that, you know, it's um, it's very bad. It's called, you know, lock-in syndrome, yeah. right? And um, some very advanced doctors can recognize that, that, but of course you need to have patience and time yeah. and stay with the person a long right. time. And Western try. doctors don't have and that. usually right. they come in and, you know, they go like, yeah. hey, look at that, follow my fingers. Okay, she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> go out of the room. Next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, next. So that was one other, one other big problem because uh, for them she was just vegetative, you know, and so for the, for the doctors and the hospital system, particularly in Italy, was like, okay, she need to go to long term care. No, we cannot do anything more about it. So I took her home. I mean, I moved back to Italy for a while. I took her home and I started the whole program, you know, researching on internet at night and uh, hiring, you know, different uh, therapy, you know, therapists. And yes, she made progress, but it was like every time I was uh, going away for work or something, you know, and then she would go back, you know, and uh, she was a very delicate person, you know, at that point was like a baby, you know, so everything could uh, push her back in a state. So it was a very, very difficult situation, but, you know, like in every every situation that is the same thing that... uh, I went through when Daniela's wife died, you know, that was, you know, another similar situation. My my point is that in any tragedy, anyhow, there is a lot of beauty. So you have to really 
you know, keep yourself together and be compassionate and be there. At the same try, time, trying to find, you know, every moment of beauty and enjoyment in there. Otherwise, you you're crash, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, one of my favorite uh, sayings is the Buddha saying that life is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Exactly. That's yeah. if you can find the joy in tragedy, then you can get through right. it. Otherwise, exactly. good luck. And you don't suffer that much. I mean, you do suffer. You are compassionate, but at the same time, you don't let things get inside you. Otherwise, you get sick as well. You know, so it's a difficult balance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, my wife, who you just met a few minutes ago, is a psychiatrist. Oh. Um, but don't get the wrong idea because she agrees with you about right. Western medicine. <laughs> Not a shrink. <laughs> yeah, she's. She she hates most psychiatric medications. She's, you know, when she's working in that setting, um, what she's always trying to do is get people off the medications, right. you know, exactly. just to, mm-hmm. so that they can be alive. Because most of those things, yeah, it's just to... you're just sedated. And uh, what yeah. about having a quite sedated life? You yeah. Know, not interested. <laughs> Have you seen a film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Mm-hmm. That, I did. Uh, before this happened no, to you? No, it was during. <laughs> that oh, my period. God. That must have been excruciating. <laughs> well, I went, you know, it was a conscious decision to go see the movie and uh, yeah it was during the time Mm-hmm. Okay, this is why I wanted to talk to you, because my impression from w- the few things that Daniele told me, but more than what he told me, but the, the tone in his voice, I think. And then when I looked online and uh, you, it seems your whole life have faced fears mm-hmm. directly. Right. And you even having Daniele, you were 17 and one day or something when he was born. Mm, yeah, just for a few hours, because <laughs> I'm born on January 10 and he was born on January 11 for like five hours after midnight. <laughs> so. uh, how how does that happen so young? What, what um, are you? Is that do you think you're born with this sort of attitude? Not, well, born. You mean about being fearless? Yeah. Yes, definitely. I think it's. I'm. I totally believe that um, children are born already with um, their own temper. Yeah. And uh, I saw that uh, not only with my son, with Isabella now, you know, but um, at that time, like you said, me and my sister were very different, and. Um, you know, you grow up in the same environment with the same parents, you know, yeah. the same experience. So yeah. you're like, how come, you know, that one person is one way and the other is totally another way. So there is definitely something, you know, that creates an attitude, you know, toward life that, uh, in my opinion, is there since the first moment you're born. Then, of course, you know, that can change, you know, with, uh, I mean, uh, how you bring up a child for sure has a lot of influence on that but um, I was definitely a child who was uh, courting risk you know I was like I had to prove myself and um, I refused to not do things because of fear so even if uh, something scared me yeah I had uh, to challenge myself you know so it's not only that you refuse to do it because of fear but maybe the fear attracts you not really the fear what attracted me was the challenge the challenge Mm -hmm. right right Uh, of overcoming the fear overcoming the fear yeah that was what i was really attracted from you know do you remember the first time you felt that 
Um, the first time I think it was, and I have a clear memory of that, which is crazy because everybody tells me it's almost impossible. You know, I was two years old. And what happened was that, um, you know, one of those stupid uh, games the kids do, right? So I was uh, uh, jumping from the back rest of a couch that was a very high back rest and I was jumping on the couch you know up and down up and down and keep doing that and having a lot of fun and of course you know every time somebody was going by I was telling me don't do it you know you're gonna hurt yourself don't do it and all of that uh-huh. and all of a sudden I actually really hurt myself really bad and that's why I think I remember because uh-huh. I landed on a little marble coffee table with my chin so see I still have the scar here oh oh yeah yeah, yeah very slight <laughs> well now <laughs> no, at the time was uh, bad yeah. really bad and so of course after I did that you know everybody in the house you know ran there and they were going crazy so that's where I got scared no because mm. they were going so crazy you know and you know really like um, well of course there was blood everywhere you yeah. know my teeth were visible from the chin you know a place where they shouldn't be seen <laughs> and things like that so I imagine it wasn't funny for my mother you know and yeah. um, you know the other people that were there I don't even remember who was for sure there was our caretaker you know I mean the woman who was with us the the nanny I guess you know and uh, but um, yeah I remember you know being brought to the hospital and everybody around really worried and all of that and uh, and that's why I was like uh, what's the big deal you know because I, of course I mean I felt pain and uh, it wasn't funny and all of that but um I didn't understand why everybody was going so crazy, you know, because in my opinion, it was like, well, I saw animals doing that, you know. I was a, I was a kid who would observe a lot. I was very active, but would also observe a lot. And, um, you know, I was seeing uh, that like a normal thing. You try and, you know, 90% of the time it goes well and, you know, sometimes <laughs> it goes bad, right? right? Okay, you fix it and then you go back to do, you know. Right. So you didn't learn the lesson. They were right. I shouldn't jump off this thing. No, at all. In fact, <laughs> I actually broke a lot of bones. I have to, uh-huh. I have to admit that, you know, like uh, when I was a child. I mean, when I was 10 years old, I had already broken my arm, my leg, all things like that. I was always up on trees. I love mm, to climb trees. Yeah, you me know. too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love there is a whole trees. life up yeah, there. You know that yeah. I, I was like, wow, I'm in another world. I felt really privileged. Yeah, and, it's a beautiful kind of solitude yes, to be up in trees. And uh, not only, but seen from above, seen, yeah. seen from above, give you a totally different perspective. Yeah. Something that I realized later in life when I started to travel by plane. That I realized that any time I was, you know, maybe feeling anxiety about something mm. or, you know, I didn't know how to, you know, some decision-making process was hard, my solution was to jump on a plane, you know, I mean, of course, uh, taking uh, and the opportunity to do some business or things like that and to see the same scene for 30,000 feet above. Uh-huh. Totally different perspective, yeah, you know? Yeah, you should have been an astronaut. Yeah, I mean, it was like, this is so relaxing, see? It seems yeah. so small, my little problem, you know, from yeah, here. Yeah. And uh, then I can go back to to Earth and deal with that, you know, in a different way. So, you know, yeah, I think... Uh, 
One of the things you and I, one of the passions you and I share, I think, is Native American cultures. And I remember... Uh, I was very. I was sort of obsessed with uh, American Indians from the time I was maybe eight till fourteen or so. I mean, obsessed to the point where I came home from school and took off my clothes and put on a loincloth, <laughs> right. which I wouldn't change out of until right. I had to go back to school the next day. So I'd be out playing in the neighborhood, you know, a naked, redheaded kid right. with a loincloth. It was embarrassing, I think, for my parents. But anyway, the, the what reminded me of it is I remember reading in some account that uh, when an Indian was being chased by whites, mm-hmm. they would go up a tree because mm-hmm. white people never look up. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I yeah, always, that always true. struck me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, white that's people true. don't look up. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and I think, um, I don't know if you, if you think the same, but uh, my... My perspective on that, the, my fascination with Native American was when I was a very young kid. A very, I think it was even before. Like I wanted already, like the doll had to be Indian, mm. you know. I wanted, you know, bow and arrows, uh, you know, things like that. And uh, like you, I was trying. <laughs> in Europe, they were selling the only way you could find something that was similar to a hide of an animal was actually buying those things to, you know, just wipe the car with. Right? Oh, right. A <laughs> chamois right. thing. Yeah. That's it's like a buckskin. You're exactly, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, convincing my mother to buy a bunch of them, you know, <laughs> and then just cut them up, you oh, know, make myself, yeah. you know, like Indian clothes and things like that. Yeah. But it never went away, that passion. In fact, this one is my last adventure that actually I'm doing with Daniela now because uh, this was the first book that I published in Italy. And uh, as you can see, it has an Italian title. It's called mm. Guerrero Dakota, and which means Dakota Warrior. But I'm now publishing that here in America. I couldn't do that for a long time mm. because it's the story of this, uh, by now, very good friend of mine, James Weddell, a young Sioux. And he was in prison for something he didn't commit. Daniele mentioned this to me. And you spent 10, 12 years or something working. I spent 10 years working on his case. And um, I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) as you know, right? I had to, not only, but I come from a different country, so with a different legal system. So I had to learn everything about the legal system. How did you meet him? I met him. It's a crazy story, and uh, I hope it doesn't sound too new (laughs) agey, but uh, I dreamt about him before knowing anything about him. And, of course, I didn't know it was him, but I just saw this person in a cell and um, he had a collar on like a person who has been in an accident no? and this was in October 92 and uh, he was in prison, I didn't know where or who he was, he didn't have any accident, he had an accident six months later when he was transferred from one person to the other and actually he hurt his neck and then he had to be you know, on that so um, after a while that I was trying to look for him everywhere because the dream was so powerful, you know, so I wanted to know where he was, you know, so I was trying to contact Native prisoners' organizations. You knew he was a Native American. Yes, I I could see that, you know, from his feature and everything, and, um, but I didn't know what tribe, what state, nothing. So I couldn't find it. Then all of a sudden I received a letter from Europe and uh, somebody I didn't know who was contacting me, knowing that I was uh, a journalist. You know, I'm a writer and a journalist. No, so and um, so they were contacting me, hoping that 
I could inquire in his medical situation because after having that accident, the prison was uh-huh. not, you know, releasing any information about him. So this correspondence he had in Europe, France, you know, couldn't know anything about him. Sure. And so when uh, they told me about him and they said, can we give him your address? At least he can write you. I said, sure, of course, you know, but I didn't really connect anything. And then he wrote me and he sent a picture. And that picture, you know, with that collar. He had the collar? Right. Oh, you know, I was wow. like, imagine, <laughs> really, you know, like struck. Right? And this was how long? Like a and year after your in, dream or something? Uh, no, like about uh, six months. Six months after mm-hmm. the dream. Six months. So wow. he was like 93. And he really impressed me, the way he was telling his story. And he asked me if I could go visit him, you know, and uh, using the fact that I was a journalist, because nobody could visit him. You know, they put him in administrative segregation. It was a crazy story. He's in South Dakota? He, he was in South Dakota, yes, South Dakota State Penitentiary in Sioux Falls. And um, he was just transferred back there from Marion, from Maximum Security Federal Institution. Yeah, that's real heavy. Yeah, yeah. real heavy. And where he has been, uh, he had been there for um, five years. What was the, the crime? The, the crime he was charged with was manslaughter in first degree. And uh, for a manslaughter in first degree, that in California, the maximum sentence given at that time was 17 years. In South Dakota, it was given 80, eight zero years. For that crime. Right. So, despite the fact that he didn't commit it, I don't even want to go now into that, but uh, Mm. the craziest thing that really struck Mm. me was the unbelievable injustice. The the racism. Of course. So, of course, racism played a part. The fact that he was, uh, you know, a defender of his people and the rights played a part. So, Mm. politics. And um, he was very involved in, um, at that time, the open battle about the Black Hills. You know, it's a long story, but anyhow, you know, there is, uh, it's all about the treaties and the interpretation yeah. of the treaty and what the American government what, did. What, yeah, yeah, the interpretation is a very generous way of putting it because the treaty says the Black Hills will, will belong right. to the Lakota as long as grass grows exactly. and rivers exactly. flow. And then they found gold there and, well, the hell with that treaty. And that's when Custer went in, and yeah, that's and not only, but at that point they case. forced a payment on the tribe. You no, know, they started to put money in the individual money accounts, mm. you know, the tribes, and uh, the strongest tribes realized that, you know, and refused it, left the money there, like the yeah. tribal council vote against that. The Yankton Sioux tribe uh, at that time, you know, they had a corrupted government. It was before the Indian casinos were open on reservations, so. Long of poverty, long story short, they voted for to take the money. So he was fighting that, you know, within his own reservation. And of course, you know, you are classified as a troublemaker. So first uh, opportunity to put you out, you do it, right? Right. So in fact, Daniela is now writing the chapter about the Black Hill things, you know, Uh, to put in the new new edition of the book, because, um, yeah, that's a project. One of the many projects that Daniel and I are going to do together, and, um, you know, he, he was very involved in the story. He came with me, you know, traveling, visiting James a lot of times, and uh, coming to the reservations, you know. Basically, it's been like 
10 years of that. He always t- tells me, you even brought me to San Quentin on that row, <laughs> you know, which is true, you know, because really... I was going to visit somebody there, you know, yeah. helping them. I'm totally against that penalty, so, you know, yeah. that was another thing. And so I was going and, uh, you know, I was visiting somebody there, a prisoner, and... Um, very nice guy, another Native American guy, and uh, he expressed the wish to see Daniele, so I told him, you want to come? <laughs> you know? How old so, was Daniele? Well, Daniele was already 18. 18? Mm-hmm. Still, that's, yeah, was an adult, that's, but a, he and that's a heavy trip the, at any yeah, age. He remembers the experience. Yeah. yeah. He's very heavy. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy, definitely, yeah. you know. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever visited anyone in an American prison. I've visited people in Thailand in prison mm-hmm. um, and somewhere else. I don't remember where. Maybe it was Mexico or somewhere in Latin America. Um, but I was in prison uh, briefly in Alaska. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've told, I think I've told the story on this podcast before, so I won't go into it. It was a stupid thing. I was hitchhiking. We were hitchhiking all through the Yukon Territory. I was with two guys I met on the ferry going up the coast of Canada, and and the three of us were together. And, um, you know, there were no cars, so we ended up spending about 10 days camping by a river, eating nuts and (laughs) chocolate and whatever we had in our backpacks. And so by the time we got to Fairbanks, we hadn't eaten fresh food for a long time so we went to this grocery store and i ate a snickers bar and didn't pay for it and my friend had some uh kefir this liquid yogurt anyway long story but we end up in prison wow in prison prison. something like that exactly yeah Yeah. because they don't have jails or at least Mm -hmm. then they didn't have jails in alaska just to hold you overnight so if they wanted to hold you it was prison and this was memorial day weekend Mm. so we had to wait till tuesday this was like thursday evening so we were there for four day yeah. weekend. Awful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but I don't want to get off on my story. That, but the point is that uh, I, I, I still remember the feeling of those doors closing behind you and exactly. yeah. the helplessness. Yeah. Like wow, you know, yeah, you're not, you don't expect heavy. it. In fact, um, I have to say that um, I did that for ten years because finally, after ten years, James was freed. You know. And, and he was freed, they dropped the charges, no, no, or what no, happened? No. It was a long, long legal battle, uh-huh. you know, that, because when I met him, the case was totally closed, like every possibility of appeal was exhausted. Uh-huh. But, you know, there were something that made me curious, you know, and something that I saw in the transcripts, so I started to... You know, think about the possible avenues to reopen the case in habeas corpus, no? so finding new evidence. And there was one um, very important thing that was that the pathologist changes opinion during trial, you know. And so that's, you know, quite unusual mm. and it shouldn't happen. Right. And so at that point, you know, pursuing the that avenue and finding other pathologists who would take the case pro bono and review the autopsy report. And uh, when they did, two very, very uh, well-known pathologists, you know, important pathologists, one was the, you know, the state um, pathologist in Texas and the other one in, uh, I think, in Oklahoma, if I remember well. Um, 
So both of them. Now, how, I'm sorry to keep yeah. interrupting you, but how do you get these guys? Well, I mean, um, I should say since this is audio, right. you're incredibly beautiful. So <laughs> I imagine you walked into someone's office no, who hadn't seen that. anyone like you in his life. This, you know what? A gorgeous Spanish woman changed my life. She walked into my office in New York. And it, it seriously, completely changed my life. So I'm imagining you. She was a journalist, too. She was a, a journalist and a photojournalist. And she wanted to write an article about this street where I was working. And by the next morning, I quit my job. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I'm always inspiring people to quit their jobs. That's for sure. So that's what I'm imagining. You walk into yeah, like you know exactly. the Texas State Pathologist office, uh, and by the time you walk out, difficult than that. Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, you know, of course, uh, um, I'm also a journalist, and so you know, this guy was on 60 Minutes uh, uh, reviewing a case of. Um, of an um, African-American guy who uh, was uh, charged with shooting his wife and, of course, you know, sentenced to life sentence, you know. And uh, instead it wasn't true, you know. So he was able to demonstrate that on 60 Minutes. So I thought, well, for sure he's not racist. Mm. So that's a good start, right? Right. And then James told me he had um, tried to reach out for him himself, but he was in Marion, so his correspondence never left Marion, no, because they were holding it and trying to avoid that. So when I met him and he told me that, I said, okay, I'm going to pursue that. No? And it took a long time, but, you know, m- months, but not years, months. But by 95, basically all the evidence have been presented, the case was reopened. Now imagine, that was 95. He walked out of prison December 18, 2003. Because the eater, you know, the legal eater, was stopped so many times, you know, like there were things unbelievable, you know, like court reporter not uh, turning in tapes with the, the, you know, the testimonies of important witness. Just trying to sabotage the process. And uh, it was crazy because uh, all of this was done basically single-handed with only the help that I could... That's why I wrote this little book in the beginning to raise funds, so to pay for the legal expenses and the expenses to go around the country and find, you know, all these things. So I did that, but it was only for Europe because I didn't want to put out anything uh, that would, you know, compromise right, the case. Right. And, um, yeah, we, you know, we raised the money and uh, we did a documentary also about uh, me and some friends. I'm just saying we, meaning me, Daniele, and a couple of friends who actually came... I met them because we were shooting a documentary about uh, the Cajun people in New Orleans, you know, in that area. Mm. And uh, they were so, you know, passionate about seeing all these letters coming from the prison. And I made them read them and see how James was. So they decided to come with me. We had the cameras, (laughs) you know, and everything. And so we went to the reservation in a matter of two weeks. did this documentary, mm. you know, with very little money. And then this documentary did the whole circuit in Europe and raised the funds. Is it available online? Can people it's, see it? Uh, um, a very short part is available online because it was, uh, as I said, it was done, you know, on basically sure. a very amatorial way. But uh, it has been posted on YouTube uh, the day James... Uh, um, 
passed away recently in a car accident. And so after that, you know, oh, it was, yeah, it was very bad, exactly, like, because only 10 years of freedom, but at least 10 years of freedom. So that's very important. So, yeah, you can find it online if you go so to look Google at James Weddell. Tribute to James Weddell. Yeah. yeah, last name is W-E-D-D-E-L-L. Right, yes. Wow, that's a hell of a story that starts with a dream. A hell of a story, we start with a dream, and completely is one of those other things that completely changed my life, you know, and of course, uh, well, I love change, so that's good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, something that started 20 years ago, basically, and he has been my best friend for the You had any years. interesting dreams recently? Um, I do, <laughs> but uh, yeah, not this kind, <laughs> you know. Uh, my dreaming life is very important, yeah. yeah. I wrote another book about that, but you know, about uh, called The Tribe of the Dream Eaters. That hmm. was um, publishing uh, in Italy at that time. I never published it here, yeah. The only one I publish here is this one that you probably saw on my blog that is called exactly Reckless. <laughs> Reckless, the outrageous lives of nine kick-ass women. Yeah, and tells you the whole story. My blog It's a fantastic too, cover. I love it. Yeah, my blog too is called Be uh, Reckless. It's got a blurb from Tom Robbins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As Fellini taught us, when the situation becomes too complicated and troublesome, you just bring on the circus. Reckless is a dazzler, says Tom Robbins. Yeah, he loved it. Tom is a great friend. We have uh, an email correspondence, <laughs> you know. That's fantastic. And, uh, so at the time when I... He knew about this project, you know, and what I was doing. He was very gracious. And, uh, ah, you know, that's, so, that's yeah. nice. Have you met him in person? Oh, my God, yeah. It's oh, a lot oh. of times. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. He's a real good So not, not just an email correspondence. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, we have an email of correspondence because he lives, uh, you know, a little bit out of Seattle in the state of Washington. Ah. So not reachable. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He came to, actually, to my first uh, party for the new house, you know. That, that one, not uh, this one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's a friend, definitely. He's a special, a special guy. writer. I read yeah. first. I read uh, even cowgirls get the blues on my first trip. The first leg of my first trip. I, I was in college and I mm-hmm. found a, a loophole in the student handbook mm-hmm. that meant I could still graduate on time, but I could skip a year. So I could leave for a year because I'd already done, like I was reading it one day. I don't know why I was reading it. uh, And I saw the requirements for graduation and like, well, I've already done that and done that and done that. And then the other requirement was you must be on campus the senior year. But I didn't say anything about junior year. Wow, and I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went to the the dean of students who also was a friend of mine. Actually, uh, he was an anthropologist. I won't say his name. I don't want to get him in trouble because he and I were in some adventures together. We used to smoke (laughs) weed together and, you know, whatever. He was a great guy. Anyway, I went to him and I said, look at this. I, I think this means I could skip my junior year. Thereby saving my parents $30,000 right, yeah. and myself. And enjoying you know. myself. Yeah. yeah. And he said, well, 
I think you found a loophole, you know, ah. you make your move because it'll be closed immediately, right, you know, after seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, but anyway, I, I, so I skipped my junior year and I decided to go to Alaska cause I wanted to, oh, um, you know, see the last frontier mm-hmm. or whatever. And so that was the year I, I was in prison yeah, and all this yeah, crazy yeah. stuff happened. Absolutely. But I remember I took a bus from upstate New York to, to Chicago or somewhere. Uh, and the guy sitting next to me on the bus had that book, and he had finished it, and we had this long conversation. He said, "Oh, you'll you'll like this book." Also, because I was a redhead, right. and it's all about Red, redheads, right. and you know. This. And actually, the the first one, like uh, um, <clears throat> about you know, um, like still oh, life, still life. Maybe it was that. Yeah, Maybe, because that's yeah. about the red. Oh, then it was no, that exactly. one. Okay, because it was all about redheads. Okay. I remember. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in fact, I was like, if you're Remembering the red that thing is that one. Okay, that's Lovely what it was. Yeah. yeah, which is a great book too. Yeah, but even Cowgirls uh, Get the Blues is my favorite. Is it? <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic because it's so surreal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And are you a yeah? Are you a Vonnegut fan as well? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I like yeah. Kurt Vonnegut. Slaughterhouse Five is one of the great yeah. books of all yeah, time. Absolutely. By the way, you know, now that you said that, that thing about finding the loophole and you know going travel and all of that that you made me think that uh, they I'm always thinking that they should actually impose that <laughs> no impose is too much but mandatorily you know like I'm totally convinced that instead of staying in school, you know, and just, you know, do your whole thing until you graduate and then, you know, mm-hmm. your undergraduate program and then you go to graduate school. So basically you get out of school that you are already like 23, 24, right. and you haven't seen anything about the world. Yeah. You don't know nothing. You it's know, all theory. Only what you, you know, studied on books. Yeah. Staying, sitting, not moving. So it's funny because... Uh, uh, a little while ago, I was interviewing Werner Herzog, you know, the movie director. Werner Herzog? Mm-hmm. Oh, my and, God. Uh, we got along <laughs> so well, and particularly, I mean, it is, he's always been, you know, somebody I really like. Yeah, he's, but, uh, he's I haven't top. seen him in uh, probably 20 years, uh, right? Last time I interviewed was, him was in the Cannes Film Festival. Right. You know? So I saw him here. I... Talk to him in Los Angeles because now he lives he here. He lives here, yeah. And uh, we talk a lot about you know walking, which is uh, I love walking is my medicine. Mm. Like I love mm. to walk, in particular, of course, in forests and canyon, and that's one of the other. Topanga. Exactly, yeah. I love Los Angeles because it's a big city with everything, but you can just walk out of your house and get lost. Right here, you can get yeah. lost in the canyons, yeah. you know, and wildlife around and all of that. And in fact, he was telling me that, uh, you know, um, he has uh, this um, uh, rogue film school that he does that is basically only weekends, you know, and uh, it's totally, you should read the statement of the school because you're going to love it, you know, and it's all about uh, uh, doing completely different thing than the traditional film school and what they yeah. tell you in school. And... Uh, one thing that he says is exactly that he would definitely give credit to everybody who takes one year to go around and walk by foot, meaning travel the world by foot. Mm. Like he did, you know, more than once, going <laughs> yeah. from Paris, you yeah. know, to Monaco. In right, there's some story. Monique in Germany to Paris. It's because France. there was a woman in Paris right. who was exactly. sick and he wanted yes. to see her before she died. Yeah. She, she 
she was his mentor. Right. And, uh, you know, she. it seems like she was dying, and he put in his mind this idea that if he was going to go there and walk, she wouldn't die. So he went. You and Herzog are very similar. <laughs> yes. I mean, did, you don't have to admit it, if, I but I, I imagine the two of you falling in love and being well, uh, incredible. You know, uh, I, I think he's a very imaginative person. He believes <laughs> in the power of imagination that he acts upon. That doesn't mean only to do your movies. Well, and he also... he. He seems to begin with the premise that life is an illusion, so who cares if it... I just, uh, two days ago, a friend sent me a link to a film he made about a volcano that was about to explode in, in Mauritius, or I don't remember. And uh, <laughs> the whole thing is like, he's, you know, in his deadpan Herzogian narrative, he says that somebody told him this thing was about to explode. So, of course, we gathered our cameras and went there. <laughs> it's like, dude, are you crazy? And I respect him for that. Yeah. Not only, I mean, a personal <laughs> risk, but also like professional. Oh risk. yeah. But, you know, he has been a ban from Hollywood for a long time because, I mean, Fiscaraldo was one of those <laughs> who, you know, blew an yeah. unbelievable budget. Yeah. And, but he's a great guy because exactly like he yeah. lives, you know, he walks his talk. He yeah. lives, you know, in person. He ate his shoe. Right. right. Earl Morris exactly, <laughs> situation. Exactly. So he practices. You know, and of course he's fascinated yeah. by crazy characters like you know Klaus Kinski yeah, or, you know, yeah. but that's part of the of the idea like you know it was like when I asked him how does he conceive the characters of his stories it was like he was giving me this beautiful uh, image telling me you know maybe I woke up because uh, I feel a, a noise in my house and then there are thieves in my house yeah. and all of a sudden uh, I'm like who are these people I'm like, <laughs> About that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He'd like sit down and have tea with them. Well, do, you've seen like, his. Yes, I would think the same. Yeah. You know, like, hey, you know, okay. Yeah. First, we take care of business. You're not going to hurt me. Right, okay? so, right. But then. You can have my stuff, right, but tell me your story. That is secure. Yeah. Exactly. Tell me your stories because I'm so interested in stories. You know, like, um, I feel like, um, yeah, that's. Uh, I consider myself, first of all, a storyteller. Mm. You know, so it doesn't matter. I I can tell my story with different means, you know, yeah. I can tell stories writing, that's for sure is, you know, my choice, but I can draw, I can paint, I can talk, you know, yeah. and uh, it's it's all good, you know, I think stories is what makes the world go around and find the beauty, of, you know. Yeah, things. well, it's certainly the, I think human consciousness is built around narrative structure. Absolutely. You know, you reminded me of this earlier when you were talking about your sister and how writing about it gave you enough distance to to withstand it in a way and to maybe to to look at it more clearly than you could when you were so close to it, you know. Um, Yeah, it's it's, uh, as a psychologist, what I haven't worked clinically, but if I ever work clinically, I think the the key will be helping people rewrite their own stories, you know, because that's really what makes your life. I believe in that a lot. And I think, uh, well, uh, you know, we were talking about uh, um, Tom Robbins before and uh, Tom Robbins tells you one sentence that has become like my creed in life, you know, that you can always build yourself a happy childhood, Mm. (laughs) right? Meaning, who cares if your parents, you know, treat you bad and you had so many trouble. Yes, yes, okay, it's important, you know, you can acknowledge that, but move on. 
And try to right. see, you know, try to see other things. Try to remember the other things right. about your childhood. You can't you know? control what happens to you in life, but you you can control how you frame that story. Exactly. Right? And of course, I mean, I'm saying that with a grain of salt because yeah. it's not like I'm saying if somebody had a very abusive experience sure. or things like that, I'm not saying that you can, oh, you know, see the beauty in that. But no. you can always, no matter how bad it is, you can always, always look at things from a different point of point of view, trying to find, you know, like you find the loophole in, right. you know, a awful oppressive structure, right? <laughs> well, it wasn't that bad, but well, it was pretty bad. Well, it was boring. Still boring. I mean, boring I, is very oppressive. Listen, you know? George Bush's niece was in my class. Oh, my gosh. Okay? That's, that's, that's the kind of school it was. Uh, yeah. So I was happy to get the hell yeah, out of there. And then after Alaska, after all my adventures, I mean, this is, you know, talking about, you know, you get, you go to graduate school, yada, 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 you graduate and all you have is theory. That was my, that was my plan. I was supposed yeah. to go to Oxford, yeah. do a PhD, yeah. everything yeah. all set up. I was a good student. I was winning all these awards and stuff. I hitchhiked to Alaska and I met all these people who were so smart, but had no idea who Herman Melville was right. or, you know, whatever. And I realized, like, the path I was on was leading me into a world of bullshit. And boredom. <laughs> boredom, bullshit, status, yes. and job security yes. if I had a tenured position somewhere. And I got to be Mr. Professor and have all these hot little 19-year-olds, you know, gazing at me. But... So I would have been, it would have been horrible, yeah, horrible. That's so, a, you know, when you yeah. ask me about Daniela, that was one of my thing when I decided that I wanted to have Daniela so early was yeah. exactly that because I wanted to have a child, not like at the end of this path. Like really? when you reach all these securities, so you first, you know, do this, then that, mm. then you go to university, then you get right. yourself, you know, secure with a career, and then you have a child, right? No, I wanted to have a child when I was still growing up. So this was so, intentional? Absolutely intentional. I was convinced about that since I was 14. But, uh, you I must wanted... have been such a terror for your parents. <laughs> I was, yeah. In fact, but on the other side, I wanted to have a, a father for my child. I mean, yeah. I wanted to have a father who would be there for him. You know, I wanted to make sure of that because um, probably I'm... I'm the daughter of uh, uh, separated, not divorced, because at that time there was no divorce in Italy. And divorce yeah. came in 1974. Right. Catholic country. So my parents were separated basically since I was born. And uh, I grew up in an environment where there were both of them, but my father was, you know, out of the house. And uh, what was awful was that they basically hated each other, but they had to play these very, <laughs> how can I say? Mm, the charade. Sure, you yeah. know, like, no, everything is fine. Normal know, family. Right. Yeah. So my idea was like, uh-uh, you know, not so romantic about love because it was like, well, love will end at some point. But I want somebody that uh, will remain and will be my friend 
and uh, will keep doing things with me for the best, you know, of this child. So I was very wise. <laughs> I wait a couple of years. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Cautious. Wait till very you're cautious. Se- like at 16. 14, my first boyfriend was, wasn't the right uh, He didn't Second, make it. No, no, no. Third one. Okay. Third. That's all it took. Three. Wow. Three. three. Third. And actually prove right. Because I don't know if you ever met Daniel's father. Uh-uh. Because he's been easier a lot. He comes a lot. Uh, oh, he lives in L.A.? Uh, no. He lives in Italy. But uh. he comes at least three or four times uh, a year, oh. you know, and this stays here a couple of weeks. He, he want to be part of Isabella's life as well, oh, and his daughter. And um, we are great friends. Yeah. We've always been great friends, you know. Yeah. Even after separating, you know, of course, maybe in the beginning things are not that easy for the first months, but after that, it was always good. So, I can say that my vision was not betraying me, yeah. because the guy was exactly what I expected him to be. Over the long haul, Over yeah, long and that's haul. that's and very you can't predict that very long. Yeah. Like, it's into the grandkids and, now. Um, it was uh, fun to to do that with Daniela. Daniela was born when I was in uh, um, my senior high school year. Yeah, and I still had another year to go before going to. Were college. you in a Catholic school? No. <laughs> I was in a public school, meaning all Italy is Catholic. Yeah, but, uh, but not nuns. No, in high yeah. school, no, no, not at all. I mean, they teach you religion in elementary school, basically, at that time. Now, uh, did your parents, or your mother, I guess you were closer to your mother at this point? Yeah, uh, I was living Did she me. know what you were intending to do? No, not what I intended to do, because uh, um, by the age I was like 13 or 12 or 13, I was very rebellious, so yeah. I was totally, you know, um, yes, I I had this total rebellion against my parents, my yeah. mother particularly, because I was living with her. So I basically kept her out of everything, you know, so I was doing my own thing. And how did you learn about sex? How did I learn about sex? Um, no, I mean, in terms of how she told me, she definitely told me, you know, how kids were born, I think, at a young age. And oh, she okay. was a very evoluted woman. She was a psychologist. Ah, you know, uh, okay, okay. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I had totally my own ideas, you know, like you go out and you experiment. So I was, when I was like 12 or 13, I was totally hippie <laughs> girl, you know, so... Yeah, and um, yeah, completely. So you were born in '57, is that mm-hmm. right? So when you were mm-hmm. 12, that was '69. Exactly. So, so the height of the whole right. summer of love was like after '68, you know, student yeah. movement, and then '69, summer of love. So you know, the echoes of that, you know, in Europe was like so. By 13, I was an anarchist. <laughs> I read the Union, <laughs> you know, and that. <laughs> Year old yes, so oh, yeah. like, I was arrested when I was 13 oh, really? time for something similar to you because actually I was at the uh, anarchist occupation of a, you know, like a, a square in front of um, the prison, um, San Vittore in Milan. And, um, you know, it was like, uh, okay, we're going to stay here like a city and, you know, with tents and everything and demonstration. And, of course, I was going there, you know, out of school and then coming back at nine, not saying where I was, where I had gone and stuff like that. But um, I happened to be there the evening. They raided the place and so brought us to 
to, you know, the, the jail <laughs> in Milan. And so my friend who was with me, and she was like a couple of years older than me, was crying and said, please don't tell my mama. You know? And I was like, shut up. <laughs> Have some dignity. Don't do that. And yeah, so of course my mama wasn't happy, <laughs> but she was used to that, you know, like, yeah. She, even when I ate Daniele, it's so funny because uh, Daniele grew up like a very balanced and mellow kid and yeah. never got in any trouble, never broke a bone, and never was. And I was totally amazed by that because I believe, you know, that my experience, <laughs> which was crazy, you uh-huh. know, was normal life for kids, you know. So I was like, well, now, of course, you know, all this stuff will happen to him, you know, like it happened to me. Yeah. But nothing ever happened. Even if I, as you said, you know, I took him, well, before Mexico, he was with me in Morocco for two months, you know, when he was seven. Mm. And we traveled the whole place, uh, basically by public transportation, you know, bus, because I wanted to meet people. And right. And um, Daniel enjoyed it, you know. And he was I, cool. That, what's that like traveling with a seven-year-old? Uh, it's great. It was great. He I, was, I recommend it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't wait uh, to take Isabella traveling. Not, I mean, I already take her traveling, but mostly, you know, around here or, you know, she's been to Italy. I want to take her to some place like the other day we were looking at pictures and she was like, have you ever been to India? And I was like, yes, I've been to India. Can you take me? And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, let's do it. Because I think it's great to expose yeah. children to a totally different culture, uh, different sceneries, uh, different climate, different everything. Different people, different and food. And your mind, yeah. you know, gets shaped in a different yeah. way. Yeah, because kids are so quick to... Um, to sort of uh, define the world, you know? I mean, I guess that's what they're doing as kids. Right. Like, like, okay, this is normal, and that's normal. And that's why they're such assholes to other kids, you know? Like, oh, wait, you're not normal. Right, and right, so right. all this aggression. I, I remember Casilda and I were in India. We were in Goa. Uh, and staying, uh, have you been to Goa? Mm-hmm. Sounds, seems like a place you may have been yeah. to. We're in Arambol, the, mm-hmm. the most northern beach. And we're in one of the, the you know, bungalows on the beach there. And, and there was a couple there, I think they were German or Swedish or something, but they had a few kids, little kids, you know, three, five, seven or in there somewhere. And they were just so cool. Right. You know, they were walking around. They weren't afraid of anyone. Yeah. They were friendly. They were well behaved. And I, I remember we were talking about that and Kisilda's traveled a lot. She has a daughter, uh, like she was older than quite a bit older than you, but her daughter's grown up now and, um, and they lived in different countries and stuff. But Casilda said, yeah, like you, kids who are raised by parents who aren't fearful aren't afraid. Exactly. They exactly. just see like, oh, okay, my parents are cool, so everything's cool. And in my opinion, it's something that you give to a kid which is very important in yeah. life. And uh, Daniele didn't, he didn't feel like that. Probably you read his book, so you hmm. know, I mean, um, he had some fear. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why, you know, he wanted to prove himself in martial arts right. and things like that. Right. Um, because he felt like, he, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, he had... Uh, he had me doing that, and then his father was much more like a person. His father didn't like to travel. He loved his routine, mm. and uh, he was great. I mean, gave Daniele a lot of very important things, but totally on a different level. And right. was hyper protective. Right. So he was always thinking that Daniele 
could get in trouble, could get dirt, don't do this, don't do that. So I had always to fight, like when I wanted to take him, you know, like to Morocco or to Mexico or, you know, things like that, or even uh, to do things like, uh, I don't know, let's go skiing, let's go surfing, let's go, you know... He always thought that, why, you know, why do you need to do that? It's supposing you need to risk. So Daniel had both, you know, yeah. which in some way probably um, gave him security, right, more. Mm. But in the other way, for sure, create uh, some different path for him. No? So Daniel said he grew up with uh, fear of that. That I didn't, I don't have it all. Like mm. exactly, like you said before, like life is an illusion. My idea is like, great, live your life to the fullest. And if it ends now, fine. You know, I don't care. I don't want to live my life, you know, stepping back or not doing something because I'm afraid that I might die or yeah. get sick. Or like I know a lot of people who don't travel because they're afraid of getting sick. Right, because they're like, oh my God, I go to Mexico and then I got Montezuma, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe, you know, it's yeah. true, it can happen. Yeah. And you know what? The best, uh, well, as I'm sure you know, the the best way to travel is to get sick. Get sick. Get sick. Right. Spend three days in your room shitting into a plastic bag or whatever right. it is and you do. Your immunity. And then you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. For the, the rest of it, you'll be fine. It's the yeah. same thing like with yeah, exactly. kids. I see mothers. Of course, you know, now with Isabella, it's like I'm a mother again. You yeah. Know, in many ways. So when I go pick her up in school, it's like mother or like, did you wash your hands? Don't touch that. Uh, don't pick up that from the yeah. street. No. Oh, don't touch the dog. Don't touch it. Right. And it's all like, why? Then kids get sick double. Well, when you know that's scientifically demonstrated yeah, now, the hygiene hypothesis. Right. Your kid isn't eating enough dirt. That's right. why your kid has asthma. And not only, but kids yeah. grow up with animals, with pets. Yeah, sure, much it's more very important. Yeah. You know? So I'm like, well, Isabella rolls on the floor with Nico, <laughs> with my dog. Fine with that. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, because it's like, uh, why you have to, you know, keep her from that yeah it's crazy well the other thing that people don't recognize is that the fear of anything whether it's travel or love or death or whatever is itself an illness and is itself it's i mean uh, one of my you know i backpacked around the world for 15 or 20 years you know just non-stop going 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 until i ran out of money and then i'd find it a weird job i taught english to prostitutes in bangkok and I taught self-defense to land reform peasant like actually they're like the pre-zapatistas in mm-hmm. san cristobal de las casas in yeah, chiapas oh, you've been there yeah. great place right mm-hmm. um anyway i've had all these bizarre jobs you know and And one of the things I learned over the years was that fear attracts danger. Yes, of course. Right? And just like the hygiene hypothesis. So trouble or, yeah. You're afraid. You see a dog and you react with fear. Uh, That attracts the dog's interest. Right. Uh, You're walking down the street. You look fearful and confused. Thieves notice you, right? So it happens on that level, but also on a very spiritual level, I think, you know? Anxiety, you look at practically any of the major causes of death, underlying it all 
is anxiety, stress. And you project it out. In fact, like you, I taught some self-defense classes, particularly for women teenagers, you know, mm. and all of that. And the first thing is exactly that. You don't want to be a prey. Don't look like a prey. Right. Don't walk like a prey. Right. Build your self-confidence. Right. You know, don't be afraid. You know. So, of course, if you can learn something that you can help yourself, is great because you... It's, as long as you know very basic moves, you can still get out of the attack. Right. Stop the attack. That's the first thing. Right. Run away. Right. You know? So if you know that, then you don't have to walk like you're afraid of everything. Right. And that will eliminate 90% of the potential danger. Yes, just, exactly. Just that you attitude. You don't have to stay home at night because you're afraid of going out in the dark. You know, And all of these things. The same thing, like you said, with travel you know, or any choice in life. A lot of times... Uh, I feel people like, okay, I'm doing all these things, and then people say, oh, because you could afford it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean I could afford it? I have no money. I mean, I make my money working, and sometimes I work out jobs. I always, since 1988, I quit my last full-time job because it was keeping me, <laughs> you know, too tied, right? And it was a great job. I was paid a lot of money, but I wasn't happy. Yeah. So I was like, I better go and do something that makes me happy. Even Of course, I will have some problems with money. But I realized that for me, it was much easier to deal eventually with the insecurity about money than with the oppression yeah. of, I don't like authority, I don't like people to tell me what to do, I don't like to be stuck in something. So mm. my idea was like, if I am finished, I'm quick, right? And I'm finished with what I have to do. I want to go out, I want to go walking, I don't want to stay in the office, yeah. things like that. Of course, that was also 20 years ago. Now, I mean, 15, at least. Now, people understand that a lot more. No? Mm. So I'm sure that there are different different kind of situation where you can actually find a job, even if you are a, re- a rebel, <laughs> no? so that's cool. But yeah. still, you know, yeah. I want to keep that. So that's the luxury that I, uh, I grant myself. No? How do I do it? Of course, maybe I give up on something else. I yeah. don't need to be surrounded by luxury in terms of, you know, having a lot of stuff. I actually hate to have too much stuff. So <laughs> I practice the giveaway like Native Americans do. So mm. when stuff starts to take my air, I give it away. Yeah. And then I reduce to minimum. And then you're not tied by your things. Uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me on my first trip to India, I... The only place I had really traveled before that was Alaska. Mm-hmm. So I, when I went to India, I made the classic mistake of packing as if I were going to Alaska. So I had a sleeping bag and a tent mm-hmm. yeah. and like a, a pump to, to you know, filter water. And you know, I had all this crap that, you know, it was like I had like a 60-pound backpack, you know, mm-hmm. going to India. So I was on the train from uh, Delhi to Varanasi. And I had the backpack under the sleeping cot thing. And it turns out that the wall that goes down along the side stops under the bed and they're just bars. So they get under the other compartment and they, with a flashlight, they slit open the zipper of my backpack and took all this stuff out. Right. And so I woke up in the morning, I was really upset. All my stuff's gone, you know. And I couldn't even fix the backpack because of the way they had cut down the zipper. It was impossible. So I got this little shoulder bag for what was left. Also, I decided I didn't need underwear. I didn't need socks because I was wearing sandals. They'd stolen my hiking boots anyway. 
And so I, I just sort of sadly put the remaining things into the shoulder bag. And a week later, I realized, like, <laughs> I, was, I didn't need any of that shit. Exactly. And now I've got this little shoulder bag, and I'm completely comfortable. It's great. My yeah, sister it's a was great, great lesson. My sister was a great traveler herself, no? Oh. And, uh, I remember this story because I lived that on the other side. Like, I was in Italy. I just had my kid, so, you know, I couldn't really travel in that moment. And um, she went to Mexico, and uh, she quit uh, her job. She was 25. She quit her job. She was a physical education teacher, and she quit her job because she wanted to be gone for at least three months, you know? So, of course, the job wouldn't allow you. And she arrived, she traveled for a while by herself, and then she was going to be reached by her boyfriend and her best friend and in this place uh, um, they were going to meet, actually in Mexico City. You know? And so she traveled, she traveled, and then she arrived in this place and uh, her boyfriend and her best friend arrived, but they are together now. Oh. So she got in a kind of shock, not knowing how to deal with this situation. And what happens? She loses everything. Passport, bag, like everything that she had was stolen. You know, that, that exact night, it was stolen out of her hotel room, which is... Kind of, you know, very cinematic, yeah, Yeah, very cinematic (laughs) because it's like, wow, this is like a cathartic moment, yeah, yeah. And of course, she goes into deep misery for a moment because you're like, oh my god, so I lost my boyfriend, I lost my best friend, I lost my stuff, I lost my money, yeah, I lost my passport, and I'm in this place and I don't know anybody, and you know, all of that. So, of course, she reached out, you know, to me in Italy and to, at least to have a passport, you know, and a little money that I could gather from my father, you know, to send her. Eh? But from that moment, actually started the best adventure of her life mm. because she, at that point, she decided, you know, well, instead of crying on myself and feeling miserable, I'm going to travel by myself any, anyhow, you know, it's not because, no. So she decided to do a completely different itinerary. She had no money, so she had to work in different places where she was. And uh, she traveled all South America for one year and three months. <laughs> yeah, And when she fantastic. came back, she was totally another person. Yeah. Much more secure, self-confident, happy, you know. The, the picture that she was say, sending during this travel experience were incredible. Like, she looked so happy. Yeah. And I was like, wow, she totally looked like a, a free person, completely yeah. free. And the the whole epiphany of that was exactly that, you know, like losing all your stuff and realizing that you don't really need it. You know, you're so attached to these things. But and that happened to me many times in life. Like I told you, like when my sister got sick, I had just bought a house. And I had to, of course, you know, I had to move back. So I had to put first everything like in a container, you know, so to free the house. So I was like, okay, let's downsize everything. I don't like stuff, but that was, you know, like really to the minimum. And then, of course, I lost the house because I wanted to be with my sister. And that. But I was like, so what? You know, it's just bricks. Yeah. You know, the way I try to explain this to people is that we have two accounts. One is money that comes and goes and comes and goes, and the other is time that just goes. So if you're planning your life around the money account, 
You're making a big mistake. I totally, totally agree with that. Yeah. Like, time to me is the the best reach. It's like yeah. if you can manage your time on your own, it's like all universe of possibilities open. Even yeah. just to stay there and stare at the wall. Exactly. That is like going That's on, the greatest luxury. Yes, going yeah. on top of a tree is the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, now I see things different and it's fantastic. That's why I was telling you I treasure my dream life. You yeah. know, like, dreaming is something so important to me. And, it, and, and it's a world without time. Right, it's, every moment is eternal. Yes, and then you're like, wow, yeah. you have like this whole imagery waiting for you, which is fantastic, and you don't need any money for that. Yeah. You just need time. Yeah. But we, do you? You do need time because you know if you live a, a life of stress, then when you go to bed, what happens? You wake up, you don't even remember your dreams. Yeah. Because you're too tired. I think alarm clocks are when are, are, it's like a, a mental rape every morning. I don't use <clears throat> clocks since twenty years. No, me either. Can't can't yeah. stand them. I have a really I have a nice thing on my laptop. I mean, maybe you have the same thing where at night it will fade out with music that you like, and you can set it for an hour or a minute or whatever you want. And in the morning, it will fade back into music that you like, so you can choose a playlist or whatever. I've been using that for a long time. Yeah, to wake up, I don't need it. You know, like I can set my mind on the Mm. time when I need to wake up. Of course, if I need to wake up at 3.30 a.m., I might need an alarm clock. But I mean, if I need to wake up at 7 or 6.30, I can just uh, tell myself before going to bed and I do wake up. Yeah, that almost always works you know um you're talking about time there's another uh, when i was traveling uh as i'm sure has happened to you and uh, your sister uh you get into situations you know you're on one of these crazy bus rides through the himalayas or mexico or wherever the other way those people drive buses sometimes is incredible and you're always uh, one step away from disaster you know lots of people things can happen and um, but I remember at the time thinking, I was in India, I was in uh, Srinagar in, in Kashmir, and I was sort of planning my trip by full moons. And I thought, well, yeah. I'd like to be, and also I sort of had to plan the trip because, and you're, you're old enough to remember this, before email and all that stuff, if you were corresponding with people, you had to do it through post restant. Yes, of course. Right? Post <laughs> I mean, yeah. people don't know what we're talking about, you know? And you had to be there at that time. Exactly. Yeah, so you would. Your mail. Yeah, yeah. So you send a letter, like I would send a letter back to the States. I think it takes a month to get to the States. Right. So if my, you know, girlfriend or whoever it was would write in a few days, then it would take a month to get back. So two months from now, Hopefully there will be a juicy, sexy letter for me waiting, right. and you know wherever. So you had to plan. It so you sort of plan, and right. you can't change because there yeah. might be mail there waiting That's for you. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I was I was planning things out by full moons, and I was I was staying on this houseboat. Have you been to Srinagar in I've Kashmir? Been to Srinagar, yes. So I was staying on a houseboat on Dal Lake, a beautiful, amazing place, and. Uh, it was a full moon, and I remember thinking, okay, next full moon, I want to be in uh, Rajasthan, mm-hmm. in uh, Pushkar, one of my favorite places in India. And, uh, and I did, and I remember being in Pushkar and thinking back, and so, man, a month ago, I was in Srinagar. A month ago, it felt like five years. So many people had come in, so many experiences, so many visions. And I remember thinking at that time that time, this linear concept of time that we have, 
is such bullshit because I have lived five years of experience. There's a reason it feels like five years because it is. Because if I had a job, it would take five years for me to meet that many people and have that much richness in my life. That's exactly why I believe that age is a total mental state. Yeah. Exactly for that reason because I'm like, well, I'm always telling Daniela when he's afraid of something, but if I feel sick or something, he's like, aren't you going to die on me? You know? And I'm like, well, if I die, I live such a full life yeah. that I really have no regrets, and no, no problem. Yeah. That. And that is a great... I was thinking this when you were talking about your sister's trip, that I hope, and I, I'm, I'm guessing, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, that having that memory of her life probably made things easier for you. Um, the memories of her life, that is a big part. I, um, when I had to write this novel and I had, uh, I had this dilemma, right? How can I make her character talk, a person who cannot talk? I decided exactly to make her talk through the diaries of her travels. Oh, so the real diaries. The real diaries. She oh. had these fantastic diaries all in a, her beautiful handwriting and a lot of, you know, like all the things like a scrapbook, right? That right. Find and attach and the little bus tickets and stuff uh, like that. Yeah. So they were incredible. And when she was sick, I was reading them to, to her, trying to wake up, you know, her consciousness. Yeah. Exactly because I saw that's exactly what she likes. And, yeah, it, it made it easier for me. Um, I don't think I would have been affected by my sister passing if she passed right away. I mean, if she would right. die on the spot, that would have been okay, completely okay with me. Right. What was uh, unbelievably painful and unacceptable was to have stuck in that situation and knowing, seeing the pain and for a person who was exactly like a traveler and an active person, a person who would live in her body and a yoga teacher, you know, wanted to to be stuck in that situation was horrible like I I can't even think about a, a a worse punishment. I mean, for me, it would be completely unacceptable. No? And uh, yeah. I was sure it was for her as well. So that was the pain. Yeah. Of course, I mean, the memories, the fact that she had a great life, she did have a great life. So that's something that, of course, makes me happy. Yeah. And if, if you've lived, then you can die, you know. And, and I hope this, yeah. I hope if, you know, if this happens to me, that people who know me have that sort of response. I, I had this experience in Tikal in Guatemala where I was stung by a scorpion um, when I was also high on LSD. And so I had this like crazy Whoa. night. Yeah, it was I can't a, imagine what the trip was that. <laughs> it's an interesting yeah. night. And uh, the guy, there was a Guatemalan guard uh, who said that they were fatal. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was dying that night, right? So I had this... I've told that story uh, on a show called Risk. If anyone wants to hear the story, it's on my website, uh, Chris Ryan PhD. You'll see it there. It's there's a, a photo I took oh, of well, the. Definitely go check the, it. Have you been to Tikal? <laughs> no, I haven't been to Guatemala. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's it's on my pretty list. beautiful. <laughs> um, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> what was the point? Uh, oh, oh, the point. Yeah, the was, point was that that yeah. night, I, 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 you know, looked at my life and I said, "All right, I was 27 years old." I said, "Well, okay, I'm young, but it's okay. 
I mean, I've been all over. The, I've traveled around the world twice. I've like had all these experiences that I wanted yeah. to have. I've I've been in love with amazing women. I've I've you know whatever I wanted to do, I've done it, right. and so I can go. It's cool. Like yeah, no complaints. To me, that was kind of a. Um discovery and um, freedom because for a long time of course having a kid that's different right? that's it's different so I've never had the courage to have a kid and, and that's so why because I had my kid for a long while I felt like I couldn't <laughs> you know yeah. like I, I yeah. couldn't say oh okay it's okay to die it doesn't matter yeah because I still had you know I wanted to be there for him. Sure. I didn't want to leave him. No? So when finally Daniela was an adult, that was liberation time. Hmm. Because exactly, finally, I could have that freedom of yeah. saying, oh, now, no matter what I do, how many risks I take. Not that I didn't take them. I took them anyhow. But, uh, you know, there was always this um, feeling of anyhow I have to overcome whatever thing comes to me to be there. Yeah. And uh, instead, when I was like, wow, now I can relax a little more. <laughs> you know, I don't have to be, you know, I mean, I love yeah. the feeling of insensibility, but at the same time, it's tough, you know, to keep it on, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, at this point, I'm more relaxed. And so that's what Daniela hates, you know, it's like, no, you can't. <laughs> no. So it's like, no, no, you can't seek like that because now we have Isabella. Yeah, <laughs> now you have another reason. Right. It reminds me of the Lakota war cry. Uh, today is a good day to die. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. exactly. Have you read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Mm-hmm. You know, the the five stages of grief. You know, the, I, I must have read her book 30 years ago or something. But those five stages, it seems like a key to the universe. Mm-hmm. It's like some Newtonian, you know, like so E equals MC squared or something. Yeah. yeah. But for, people are written at that time. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, what she she argued was that people, when they're diagnosed with a terminal illness or, or even uh, dealing with the death of a, a loved one, they go through these five distinct stages of grief, which is um, first, denial. That's not me. There's a mistake. The lab made a mistake. How can it be? I eat I take vitamins. Uh, then there's anger. It's not fair. How could this be? Then there's bargaining. I'll, okay, I'll stop smoking. Uh, I'll, I'll start exercising. And then there's depression when you realize that none of the, the foregoing things are working. And then finally acceptance. Right. And... It seems that these five stages sort of apply to everything, mm-hmm. including just life itself. And what it, well, I'm, this is a long-winded way of saying that it feels like you, at a very young age, arrived at acceptance. Yeah, I never let myself go through the depression stage. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think I jumped that. You jumped that one. <laughs> yeah, every time. <laughs> yeah. But what about I the first know. ones? It doesn't sound like you were in denial or uh, anger or bargaining. Well, it depends. You know, no, denial or anger, no, maybe not. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, probably didn't follow that steps, you know, like, but um, what I, will, I think is more natural to me, um, which as a, a 
you know, the other side of the medal is I cannot really deal with people who are depressed. I'm not the right person to deal with people who are depressed mm. because I'm I'm a doer. So right. you know, I'm always feeling like, hey, get up, get yourself together. Which of course, a person who's depressed is yeah, not what they want to hear, and doesn't yeah. work. And I realize that. So um, that is my trouble. I really cannot. Uh, um, I'm I'm feeling very pain the pain of this person and I cannot help them and so that gets to me but other than that in my life I always try to I could be deeply sad but not depressed big difference very big yeah difference, like you know? like the difference between being alone and being lonely exactly yeah so it's exactly that I think I train myself to do that to allow myself to be super sad you know even you know, letting go of everything, mm. crying and uh, crushing stuff and yelling and all of that. You're Italian after all. Y- yes. You have the right. Yes. <laughs> but after that, uh, you know, oh. the prime is, is really like tomorrow is another day. Yeah. So I do that. It's like cathartic. But then it's like, okay, now I get up. Yeah. And th- that is also something that came also through martial arts. You know, right. the reason why I wanted to learn martial arts was exactly that because uh, it teaches you that uh, is something I wrote also in Reckless. You know, because not everybody is born, you know, so adventurous. But if you train yourself, that yes, you do get hurt, hmm. you do fall down, but okay, you know, you fall down, you get hurt, you feel pain, but you can get over. Yeah. So you get up. Reckless is a very interesting word. It is a very interesting word. Of course, I'm intending that in a different... I know that uh, um, in the American vocabulary, very often is intended in a bad way, meaning reckless. You know, like, like careless. Right, careless. It's yeah. not careless. No. To me, it's uh, exactly not to hold back. Right. Because you really go and follow your passions. Yeah. So my idea is that, is to be, you know, in Italian, there is a, a word for that that is called imprudente. Yeah. Not to have, you know, this kind of prudence. Yeah, in, in English, in, imprudent really means careless, without, without right. it's Instead foolish in, in a way. It's different. Yeah. It's like Do you know the word intrepid? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Intrepid could be It's a good word, yeah. yeah. But what I was thinking about reckless that's interesting is, you know, reckless suggests... Uh, this sort of like, you know, like, you know, running into a dark forest and, you know, you're going to hit a tree. Right. But I don't feel it like. That. No, no. But the word also suggests the opposite of that. The lack of wreck, exactly. the lack of exactly. accident, the lack of yes. disaster. Exactly. So it sort of suggests, it, you know, one thing and its opposite at That's the same why time. I chose it because I thought it was a very interesting victory <laughs> word. Yeah, it is know, an interesting word. You're right. You could have been intrepid, but that was just one meaning. You know. Right. And instead, I want that to be since the beginning, in some way, creating a debate. Yeah, know? yeah. And it did, you know, because people are intrigued by that because it's like, what you mean, reckless? Yeah. Why? you want to be reckless no and uh, then of course in that book i put the lives of nine women who chose to follow their passion in totally different fields i put the scientists i put you know triathletes Mm. um, you know completely different field but they have this common thread that the thing is they decided to follow their passions yeah completely head-on and uh, it's the same thing i think in life you know Basically, that's uh, that's the thing to do. 
I mean, you, what else are you going to do? Yes, if this you isn't a practice what run. You like, you know, yeah. and then uh, you're satisfied. You don't have any regret because you're doing what you do. So it doesn't matter, you know, if stuff happens, even bad stuff. You chose it in some yeah. way, you know. I mean, yeah. you chose to do your things, then hey, shit happens, you know. It can happen to everybody. People rarely regret on their deathbeds the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. That's exactly the point. Yeah. And I don't want to regret anything that I didn't do. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't want to feel like, oh, my God, I could have done that. I could have done, you know, different. And why? You know? I could have fallen in love with Werner Herzog and traveled around the world. <laughs> Do you see his film about Antarctica? Yeah, I did. Such, I love that film because it it so beautifully expresses what you you were talking about with him. This this finding the story, you know, he goes to Antarctica. It's called uh, Encounters at the End of the World. Mm-hmm. If anyone wants to look it up, I'm sure it's available online or Netflix or whatever. Uh, it's pretty recent. It's yeah, maybe even on his website, people can go. Oh, really? Oh, he streams it there. And he goes to Antarctica not really knowing uh, what he was going to do. He was going to do some uh, feature, um, his friend who's an under underwater photographer, uh, uh, Henry Kaiser, who used to be a very well-known musician, uh, gave up music to go do this stuff. And he, so Henry Kaiser does this crazy underwater photography actually under the ice. It must be the most dangerous alien place on the planet. And uh, so he knew he was going to do some of that, but he didn't really know what else and the rest of the film is conversations with the people most of the people like support staff who work down there the guy who fixes the trucks and the guy in the greenhouse who grows the vegetables and i'm sure marijuana that guy (laughs) seems so stoned in that interview (laughs) it never it was never made explicit but if you know what to look for that guy definitely seemed like he was growing some weed down there um and uh, yeah, it's it just fantastic the people he met and and how every one of them had some amazing story, you know. Because yeah, exactly. if you don't have an amazing story, how the hell do you end up fixing trucks right. in Antarctica? Yeah. You know. And plus, I mean, it's like uh, in my opinion, it's like if you give time to the people and you know how to bait them, yeah, in some way. Well, and they all have and also stories. to establish some some trust. Yes, I think yes. he must just be yes. really good at. Yes. Making you feel that you can trust them. Yeah, making people feel comfortable with you, you know, and also demonstrating that your interest is uh, pure. Yeah. Not, you know, yeah. coming from some business perspective or things like that, I think is a great. In fact, uh, when I was doing a lot of journalism, you know, and uh, um, I really like uh, the thing that I really like best was interviewing people, but not meaning like uh, how the magazine would want me to interview them like one hour and then you're gone. So I was spending maybe, you know, I was going for an interview and then I ended up maybe to stay three days, you know, yeah. with these people going around doing things and all of that because you get to know a person. Yeah. And then, of course, you have only like those 2,000 words to write. Who cares? You know, I'm writing the 2,000 words, but I'm saving the other 20,000 that went between us and told me a lot of stories. That's a a treasure. And it's such a pleasure. It's such an honor to, to have people that accept you into their world. Absolutely. You know, fine, you write your article and you write it as well as you can because that's what gives you that key, but... 
but really it's about enriching your own experience and their experience and it's yeah, but that's what they yeah. really like the best that's know? why i do this podcast right, you know right. i mean i'm not Talking making money and, from it uh, no it's like daniela same thing yeah and i think it's great because it's a great way beside the fact that i'm totally in favor of every DIY project no because no it's true it's the same thing like why i'm self-publishing now this book in america because i'm like i don't want to stay here and wait for all the times of the publishing industry and all the bullshit you know with yeah. waiting for 20 agents to get back to you in two years yeah. and then no way i'm gonna self-publish it and that's it you know and yeah. whatever you know how it goes but at least it's out right and at least it's there and whoever wants to connect to the story can do it yeah and yeah i I have a contract for my second book. Um, that's great. I mean, if you can have a contract for your second book, well, your book is great. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's great, but there's still, you have to go through the bullshit. Right. And there is a lot of bullshit. And actually, after the first book, it was so much bullshit that I told my agent, like, I, I gave him a number. I said, if, right. if it's less than this, I don't. I'm not going to do it. I'll do but it myself. Great. Exactly. I did the same. I mean, all my four previous books are all published, you know, regularly by... Mm. Regular publisher, and I never had to actually. I never had an agent because I always went straight to the publisher, and you know they took it. Now I'm doing both things. I'm doing the regular route, trying to find an agent for the novel that I wrote about, you know, my sister experience and all of that. But for this, I'm like, no, I don't want to wait. Right. I don't want to wait because it's a story that now, you know, not only because I promised the family and friends, you know, when there was the wake, you know, the four days wake in October for him. And I met with his family again and all of that. And I said, yes, I'm definitely now. I can publish it in America. There is no risk because, you know, all the people, you know, involved in that are basically dead. No, so... Um, because there is a whole story about he escaped from prison, you know, and uh, everybody was hiding him. That alone, it's a move. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Two years he stayed out, hidden in all the reservation and all of that. You ever met Peter Matheson by any chance? Uh, I never met him, but uh, I love how he writes. Oh, me yes, too. Absolutely. I play in the fields of the Lord. I wish I could meet him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Love to meet he's him. a depressed yeah. person, though. Really? Yeah, okay. he's, a pretty, he's a downer from what I've heard. He's a wonderful writer and a very interesting wonderful man. Writer. Yeah. Yeah, it, Russell Means, he worked with yeah. Russell Means a lot. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I was like, no, for this, I'm not going to wait. Yeah. I'm just going to self-publish it. It's, and by is, now, we have this possibility, you know. Is Reckless so, self-published? No, Reckless is published by Seal Press. Ah, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Reckless is on Amazon, you know, and you can buy it on Amazon. Yeah. Reckless, check it out. Mm-hmm. Gloria. Mattioni. Mattioni, M-A-T-T-I-O-N-I. And what is the city? In the cover there, the woman is like Las Vegas. Oh, is, that, is that Las Vegas? Really? Yeah. It would be. Yeah, there's a woman like upside down, wearing uh, it looks like uh, dishwashing gloves. Right. <laughs> so, you know, supporting herself like on one hand. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. The outrageous lives she of nine kick-ass women. Daring thing is she's on the roof on Las Vegas on the. Skyline of Las Vegas in the background. Yeah. And she's on one only finger, straight up. Oh, she's on one finger. That's yeah. her. Oh, I thought she was holding a no, ball. No, no. She's, she's on one. Finger. She's supporting herself on one finger. Yeah. That's right. Oh, my God. Like an acrobat. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's got high heel shoes on. And she's got high heel <laughs> shoes. Yeah. 
those are what Casilda calls uh, fuck me up shoes. Right. And they're not fuck me up shoes. They're fuck me shoes. They're yes, not fuck exactly. me up shoes. They're just but for fun. She throws. Right? She always throws an extra word into into her phrases. Well, you know, it's uh, it's <laughs> interesting. I think uh, I used to go for walks with my dog. You know, like wearing black garters because <laughs> and every, under my jeans, and the people were like, "But why? Nobody sees them. Doesn't matter. I know." Yeah. So I'm feeling, you know, that way, and that's what I want to do today. You know, and that's it. You know, do you know like a habit, but uh, if I well, sexy, why not? Why not? Why not? I, I have. I spoke to a woman. I don't even remember where I met her. It must have been in an airport or something. And she worked at the Victoria's Secret, uh, like the biggest Victoria's Secret outlet in London. Mm-hmm. And she said that. A huge percentage of their sales went to women from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, right. these countries. But they had to hide it, right? Yeah. Right. So they come in, they buy the most amazing lingerie. Oh, I can believe that. <laughs> under burka, and it's under the burqa. Right, exactly. So they're walking down the street, like, dressed to kill under the burqa. Yeah. Can you imagine what the satisfaction against the construction, <laughs> you know, that you have to wear this awful burqa, yeah. you know, yeah. hiding you. But then it's like, a, it's like a slap in the face of, you know, the... Yeah. 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 It's an interesting form of rebellion. I like yeah. it. I like it. Well, listen, I've taken a lot of your time. I could spend all day here with you. Uh, you know, maybe we can do part two. We haven't talked about your work. We haven't really talked about your travels much. But uh, Another time. Another time. It's such a pleasure to, to chat with you. I'd, I'd love to hear more of your Thank stories. You. Thank you very much. You. So what, what's your, your website? Where can people find out more My about you? website is with a dash in the middle. Yes, a dash in the middle. B-E dash reckless.com. Or they can also find me on Facebook, you know. Good. And I'll put a link on, on the, the yes. page for yes, this. Yes. And there, uh, I think there is also in my blog, there is uh, a post about the book, the new book that is coming out in March. Ah, it's coming out. Or, oh, oh, you've got a translated or already you already wrote it. Daniel is uh, writing the chapter about the Black Hills. Ah, good. So it will be also a project with Daniel. Fantastic. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it goes on print on February 1st. Great. It's almost done. All right. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. <laughs> It'll be fun. Thank you. Thank you. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Send it for a headstone Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a bird 